Praise the Lord this morning. How are you guys doing? Praise God. It can always be worse. No matter what you are going through, it can always be worse. I am so glad that the Lord is sovereign over us. Praise the Lord God. Please open with me to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. We're going to go over the first 26 verses of Lamentations chapter 3. It's even going to sound like a running commentary at parts, but we really want to park on verses 22 through 26. That's where we're going to land, but I just need to give us the context of what was going on at that period of time. Now the word clearly states that we should rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, uh, I will say rejoice in Philippians 4 verse 4. Yet many of us fail to obey this command, myself included. But the question we have to ask ourselves is why do we fail to rejoice in the Lord always? And uh, most of the time, I have surmised that it's because we place our feelings ahead of the facts of any given situation. And our feelings constantly change, change, but it's a proven fact that facts never change. And if only we can keep that at the forefront of our minds instead of uh, getting lost in the recesses of our hearts, whenever the situations turn dire, it would definitely help. Because what you keep at the forefront of your mind is the first thing you will hold on to when times get hard. Uh, the corner stores and the supermarkets have studied us and they know this uh, scientifically uh, that the, the thing that is convenient for you to grab when you go into their stores, even though you didn't plan on grabbing that bag of potato chips or a Snickers bar or whatever it is, when you're hungry and desperate, you will end up taking something you didn't intend to take when you first went into the store. As it is in the corner stores and supermarkets, so it is in every aspect of our Christian lives. When we're desperate and hungry for answers, many times we'll grab onto ill-advised suggestions and advice that may cause us more harm than good. What we must learn to do vigorously is to place the facts of who God is at the forefront and not elevate and magnify those things that we believe we need as opposed to what God says we need and how we should go forward. And I believe we can learn a great deal from the prophet Jeremiah as he's going through one of the worst periods of his life in Lamentations uh, chapter three. Uh, it is by far one of the most grisly, gruesome, bloody times um, of any person you will read in the Bible. Not the most, but one of the most. So as we look at his life and how he processed things and what he went through and how he came out on the other side, I want to pray so that we will cast out all of the uh, uh, the weekly events that we went through and even the things that we're suffering with, suffering with right now in our lives that we may see how godly people operate 
and bless God in the midst of their pain. Let us pray. Father, we want to praise you with our lives. So as we seek understanding and truth, and hopefully will be changed by the power of your word and your spirit, we want you to impress this word upon our hearts that we may walk in a manner worthy of our calling, keeping in mind the facts of who you are rather than the feelings we're going through at any given moment. Amen. So the three points for this morning's sermon are, number one, point number one, a purpose in pain. A purpose in pain. Point number two, praying through the chains. Praying through the chains. And point number three, my portion remains. My portion remains. I'll be reading Lamentations now, chapter three, verses one uh, through, 12, through 26. Uh, like I said, but our main focus will be verses 22 through 26. This is the awesome and inspired word of the Lord. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the day of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Point number one, a purpose in pain. Now it is probable that the scroll of Lamentations was composed in the three months after Babylon, Babylon captured Judah and Jeremiah's forced departure into Egypt. 
And Jeremiah's grotto is the name of the place just outside the northern wall of Jerusalem where tradition says that Jeremiah wept bitter tears as he composed this letter marking the funeral of the once beautiful city of Jerusalem. This grotto is under the nose that would one day be called Golgotha. The same hill on which the cross of Jesus was erected so that the suffering prophet wept where the suffering savior died. Now, Lamentations consist of five poems correlating to its five chapters. So in the first poem or chapter one, the city sits as a desolate, weeping widow overcome with miseries. In chapter two, these miseries are described in connection with the national sins of the people on one side and the acts of God for those sins on the other. Chapter three speaks of Jeremiah's calling to mind God's character in the midst of his trials. But then chapter four goes back to lamenting the ruin and desolation of the city and temple and again traces it back to the people's sins. And finally, chapter 5 is a prayer that Zion's reproach may be taken away in the repentance and recovery of the people. What this letter does is it keeps in mind or brings alive the memory of the painful fall of Jerusalem. Yet at the same time, it teaches all believers how to deal with suffering by focusing on the facts of who God is rather than focusing on how you feel because of everything that's going on around you. That's the center point of this book, chapter three. Of course, at the time, there were no chapter breaks, but it's in the center of this scroll, how to overcome by looking at God. So listen again to what Jeremiah says in verses 1 through 3 as we look at this section by section until we get to verses 22 through 26. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Jeremiah had to know, being a prophet of God, that he was not under the rod of God's wrath personally. Nor was he brought into darkness without any light, but that's how he felt at that moment in time. In actuality, he was in the midst of God's wrath against an unholy nation, yet he places the bullseye square on his back. So in verses four through seven, he says, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. As you read other biblical accounts of Nebuchadnezzar's siege, against uh, Judah, you would know that he surrounded the city and blocked all the gates at, so that no one could go in and no one can come out. No produce, no trade, no nothing so that the people would starve. That's the point of a siege. And normally compassionate mothers 
for food were boiling their babies so that they can survive. And I know some of you are sitting there thinking, no, I've never seen that in the Bible. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that's true. So what I need you to do is to go one chapter over into chapter 4 so that you may see it for yourselves. In chapter 4, I will read beginning at verse 4 to verse uh, 10 so you can get an idea of how, how, how vicious the times were. In verse, uh, verses 4 through 10, it says, the tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Hmm. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple, rich meaning, embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. This is what Jeremiah was seeing and smelling during that time of the siege. Continuing in chapter 3, verse 8, he writes, Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. Jeremiah's situation seems so helpless that he says God used stones to block his ways. Not hedges, not wooden fences, but stones which portrays an impenetrable obstacle as if there was no way he would ever escape this terrible predicament. So listen to Jeremiah, um, his despair in verses 10 through 14 as he continues describing what it feels like to him to have God's hand against him. Verse 10, he is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. In the middle of Jeremiah's suffering, he wasn't concerned with God's eternal plan for his people. He wasn't even thinking about the retribution for their sinfulness and the punishment for their ungodliness. He wanted relief at that moment. Right then, it doesn't matter the purpose. It doesn't matter what happened in the past. It doesn't matter what I prayed. It doesn't matter that they didn't listen to me. This is too much. This is too much. But in God's sovereignty and omniscience, he's, he's concerned with his eternal pain over any temporary discomfort. Side note. The world around us is so much bigger than just us. And if God is going to use you to 
affect the gospel on the people around you. He needs you to keep your eyes on things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and not on your temporary pain. You have to look to the eternal. You have to look to Christ. You have to look to what he went through and you have to trust that he knows what he's doing and he's going to carry you. He's going to keep you. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Peter compares the various trials that we go through to fire. Fire is an element that God uses to test and prove the genuineness of our faith. There, in 1 Peter, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Can you hang on? Only by the power of God. Only by the power of God can you continue to walk through this life in holiness and not compromise. Only through prayer, only through the kindness of God can you do it. Stay connected to God. Stay in him. Stay in his bosom. Don't take it for granted. Yeah, I gave my life to Christ when I was 10. I'm okay. Yeah, I, I fell, but that's what people do. You have to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You have to repent. Not repenting years ago, but a continuous repenting before God. Lord, forgive me. Confessing your sins to the person you sinned against so that they wouldn't think, oh, that's what I thought about Christianity, a bunch of hypocrites. By all means necessary, God works in us to transform us into the image of his beloved son that the world may see Christ in you. And sometimes that takes fire. And yes, fire hurts, but God uses it once again to purify and reveal the true glory of the object that's being tested. So the question then becomes, how do I endure in the midst of the fire? That's where steadfast prayer is vital. Some people say, well, I pray in the morning, I pray in the afternoon, I pray in the evening. It's not enough. Continuous, steadfast prayer before God. I'm not talking about taking 35 minutes an hour. I'm talking about in the midst of a fiery situation and in the midst of the calm time. Lord, praise your holy name. I thank you. I pray for wisdom. I pray for wisdom on how I can use this time to your glory. Lord God, I'm about to go home and I know it's not going to be a pleasant environment, but I pray that I can honor you, that the words that come out of my mouth will bless you. I can't do it on my own. Continuous prayer. Lord, I'm in traffic again and I know how that rage overtakes me, but Lord God, your spirit is stronger than any rage within me. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Don't just quote it from scripture. Live it. Live it. This brings us to point number two, praying through the chains. If we were to peruse through the book of Jeremiah, we would get a fuller picture of the particular types of suffering that Jeremiah endured. In Jeremiah chapter 20, for instance, we see Pasher the priest, a man who was supposed to intercede between the people and God, 
He was angry with Jeremiah because Jeremiah prophesied that a king from the north is going to come and destroy the people and take you into captivity because of your wickedness. Instead of Pastor listening and repenting and preaching a message of repentance and speaking to the people that we are wrong in God's sight, he beat Jeremiah. And after he beat Jeremiah, he threw him into the stockades. So Jeremiah 20 says, as Jeremiah is speaking to God in the midst of being in the stockades, he says, I have become a laughing stock in the midst of his suffering, locked up in chains, in prison, in the stockade. He's praying and speaking to God. He says, I have become a laughing stock all the day. Everyone mocks me. If I say I will not mention him, mention God, or speak anymore in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, meaning I have to tell them what the Lord has put in me. I cannot remain silent. I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. Say, all my close friends, watching for my fall, perhaps he will be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Dread here just means might. So Jeremiah is telling them, go ahead and mock me. But the Lord is with me as a mighty warrior. Continuing. Therefore my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly ashamed. For they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, who test the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For to you have I committed my cause. End quote. Yes, Jeremiah was suffering for giving them God's word, which is what God told, them, told him to do. So what did Jeremiah do in the midst of that? Did he say, why me, Lord? No. He prayed through his chains. He prayed, Lord, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. Now looking back on that time when uh, he was in prison, here in Lamentations chapter 3, moving uh, a few years past Jeremiah chapter 20, as Jeremiah recollects what happened, he says, I called on your name, O Lord. From the depths of the pit, you heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came here when I called on you. You said, do not fear. As we get to look at this from the big picture, we can see that although Jeremiah is suffering, what is going on all around him in actuality is what he prayed for. He prayed, Lord, let me see. He didn't just pray, Lord, get them. He said, let me see. So unfortunately, he's seeing exactly what was going on, the vengeance and retribution of God on a wicked nation. He's there to see it all. And it's hard. It's hard. When we think of someone who, is, who has done us wrong and is doing us wrong, we have to be careful how we pray for them. We can't look at the way uh, 
so the penitent psalms speak of David saying, get him, Lord, and say, that's my uh, uh, instruction from the Lord. No, we have to look at the end of Matthew 5, which we will get to uh, sooner, or sooner or later. But we will get there. But we have to go with the prayer of, Lord, God, I'm going to pray for those who persecute me. Why is that? Because hell, then the lake of fire, is so, so horrific. The people who don't know any better need you to pray for them, to understand that they are blind, following the blind. Not say, well, I'm going to wrestle against the flesh. When the Bible says you're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and, and, and powers in higher places. They're blinded by the God of this world. So we pray that God will remove the blinders and soften their hearts and write his laws upon their hearts, that they would change and have what you have, because you remember what you were like. Continuing in Lamentations chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 15 to 21. It says, he has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Where'd that come from? We just had 18, almost 18 verses of how hard it was, how he had no hope a few verses earlier, but now he has hope. This moves us to point number three. My portion remains. In the midst of his tragedy and calamity, what happens is that Jeremiah calls something to mind. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the ruin, not knowing that he's going to go to Egypt soon, Babylon, uh, Judah is gone, Babylon's coming back. Babylon set a few people up. What is going to happen? I'm going to write. I'm going to write what's going on, not knowing the future. This is, this is terrible, it's, it is bad, but in the midst of that, he called something to mind. Did you catch that in verse 21? But this I call to mind. He is about to call to mind the attributes of God and the facts of who God is, beginning in verse 22. Here is where we need to park. As we will now see, his whole attitude changes. In verse 20, verses 22 through 25, he says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Awesome. What a transformation. He was just saying things like, oh, he was just saying, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. He just finished telling us that his endurance has perished and so has his hope from the Lord. 
what happened is Jeremiah shifted his focus from his limited perspective, his limited understanding of what was happening, which, by the way, guided and fueled his misguided understanding of what was happening and his misguided feelings. And he now begins focusing on who God is. How? By referring to the scriptures. By referring to things that he had read from the scriptures that had been written for his admonition, for his strength. And he proclaims the facts about God his character, his attributes. In verse 22, when he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end, he's just basing that on the fact of scriptures such as Psalm 103, verse 17, which says, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children. And Psalm 106, verse one, which says, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is, he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 136 alone speaks of God's enduring love 26 times, in case you didn't get it the first 25 times. Concerning God's mercy, Jeremiah relies on scriptures such as Psalm 40, verse 11, which says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will preserve me. And Psalm 23, verse 6, where David says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So Jeremiah also moves on to God's faithfulness from the scriptures. Uh, such as scriptures such as, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness from Psalm 33 verse 4. And then in Psalm 100 verse 5, the word declares, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. And because of these three facts number one, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, number two, his mercies never come to an end, and great is his faithfulness. It was enough to make Jeremiah say with conviction, the Lord is my portion. Can you say that, beloved? The Lord is my portion. When it seems as if the hand of the Lord himself is, a, is, is against you because you don't see nowhere to turn and you can't find no one to help, can you truly say at that moment in time, deep down in your soul, that the Lord is my portion? It's an honest question to ask yourself. This expression is found in a few places and used by a few people in the Bible. But it's initially based, the first time we hear it is in Numbers chapter 18, verse 20, where Aaron was denied an inheritance in the land. And instead of land, he was told that the Lord is your portion and inheritance. And he didn't flinch because he had saw the faithfulness. He had seen the faithfulness of God. Years later, uh, uh, King David would profess the Lord is my portion in, in the midst of a messianic psalm, Psalm 16, verse 5, 
He tells all Israel, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. The Lord is my portion was also proclaimed by Asaph in Psalm 73, verse 26, when Asaph saw the prosperity of the wicked, and he tells God, I almost stumbled when I saw it. When I saw the prosperity, prosperity of the wicked, I began to believe that it was in vain that I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent until I entered the sanctuary. That's when Asaph discerned truth. <clears throat> he stated to God in verse 18 of chapter 73 of the psalm, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Once he knew what would become of those who had stuff, but not God, he wrote, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph, Asaph had it right. His flesh may fail him through sickness, and his heart, meaning his soul, may fail him through overwhelming anguish and sorrow. But regardless of that, his strength came from God, who remains eternally his portion. And once again, David, while he was finding temporary refuge in a cave, in Psalm 142, verse 5, he displayed true reliance on God when he prayed, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Going back to Jeremiah, in Lamentations 3.24, because the Lord was his portion, he could once again say, therefore, I will have hope in him. This hope was not wishful thinking, but a confident expectation that the Lord would provide. The question to ask yourself when you wake up in the morning is not, I wonder what's going to happen today to ruin my day. What is my evil boss going to say? What is my wife, is she, is she going to keep putting me down? What is my husband going to, to do that just gets on my last nerve? No, the question to ask yourself is, do I really possess the God I claim to love? Do I really possess the God I claim to love? Is he my portion? I think of the three Hebrew boys facing the fiery furnace. It doesn't get much worse than that. When they were brought before Nebuchadnezzar, he told them, now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the lyre, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the image that I have made. Then it will be well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you from my hands? Most of us will never face a trial this severe. Yet because the Lord was their portion, they told Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Meaning, I don't even know why you even bring that to us. We, we, you know our character. You know we're not bowing down to anyone except the Lord Yahweh. That is the only one. So I don't even know why you're even tempting us, trying to tempt us with that. And, and, and the thing is, 
In verse 17, they say, if this be so, even if that were true, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. When the Lord is your portion, you can stand strong in the midst of trials that seem overwhelming. Like when your body is racking in pain and it feels like you can't take it one more day. Or when you're bearing the weight that your family may be falling apart and there's nothing you can do about it or whatever challenges this world is bringing your way, through it all, you know that somehow God is working it out for your good and his glory. And that makes all the difference in the world. God must be glorified. If the Lord is your portion, Jeremiah tells us what we should do after we have prayed and after we have called to mind the facts of who God is. In verses 25 through 26, he says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. But my life is horrible. Nothing goes my way and nobody cares. What am I supposed to do? Wait for him. Quietly. Once again, the scripture says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. Do you believe? To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Some of us don't know how to wait quietly. When we speak about it, we're not speaking sincerely. We're not showing that we trust in the Lord. When we normally, when we speak about it, it's a complaint. It's a whining. It's as if we have no hope. And it's worse when we speak to unsaved family members and they become your, 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 your first choice to find refuge and help. And some of them in their minds, they're saying, look at them. They go to church, they've been going to church for 20 years, but they're running around with no answers. And we set a bad example. Once again, the word says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, you can choose to believe it. You can choose to believe it by faith. Or you can deny it and continue living in fear, in doubt, and unbelief. Two words of application may help. Application number one, endure till the end. Endure till the end. Through beatings, imprisonment, mockings, scorn, Jeremiah stayed faithful to God till the end. We all have those days, those months, or even those years. But we must remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, where it says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You are not the first and only Christian going through what you're going through. But if you hang around enough Christians and have real conversations, you may hear how God is able to deliver out of what seems to be the undeliverable situation. As we have seen here from our text, even the best of us, like the prophet Jeremiah, can get stuck on his feelings and forget the facts, sometimes even stating his feelings as if they were facts. And I don't know if you know this, but for the first 21 verses, we read the words me, my, or I, sometimes multiple times in one verse, in every verse, until we got to verse 21. It was all about him. Until we got to verse 22, I should say. It was all about him because that's all he could see. Sound familiar? We have to be careful because when we focus inwardly, that's when the pity party begins. And we begin saying things like, why me, Lord? I go to church and everybody's doing well. Why me? I have counseled for a long time. And I know you can have a church full of smiling people who can tell you they're too blessed to be stressed, but in their lives, when you sit them down and you, you take them, you remove them away from Sunday morning, you take them out of that atmosphere because they don't want to be the weird one who's sorrowful. So they just fit in with everybody else while they, their lives are crumbling. If you took the time to speak to somebody and somebody who doesn't look like you would help. That you may see we all struggle with the same things. And the unity that comes in the body is that Ephesians 4 unity that Christ says we should have through the Spirit, through Paul, until we see him. Until we see him, that unity that says, well, I don't know what they're about. Well, find out what they're about. Just ask, how can I pray for you this week? Are you okay? Let's go get some coffee. Let's go get something to eat. Let's, let's, let's not, not run home after service because you are missing one of the best parts of fellowship. Not being the first one to run out the door. Amen. And the doors are swinging already. And somebody will say, I, I, I didn't get nothing from church today. Well, you didn't give to the body of Christ. Instead of saying, why not me and going down the list of all the troubles, the question really, biblically, should be, why not me, Lord and Master, Lord and King? I am just a servant. Why not me? Think about this. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, informs us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory. Then three chapters later, in chapter 6, verse 23, it says, the wages of sin is death. So you do the math. All have sinned. I deserve death. My pay for my sin is death. That's the equation right there. So no matter what is happening to you here on earth, you deserve worse. I deserve worse. If it wasn't for God's grace and mercy and the blood and righteousness of Christ being applied, accredited, imputed to me, to my account, I could be suffering in the torments of hell at this very moment. But praise be to God for his glorious grace. The truth for every born-again believer is that God has justified you, adopted you, 
and he welcomes you into his presence on a daily basis. Don't miss out on that while you're having your pity party. Don't miss out on the facts of what God has done. It is mind-boggling why he would do it. On the other side of that, for those who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, you need to worry about what happens today. Because if today is the end of days for you, then you're going to face a fiery torment in hell. That will be the next thing you experience. And down the road after that, you will experience the lake of fire for all eternity. But it's for this reason that God gave his only son and whoever believed in him. You will not perish, but you will have eternal life. What is better than that? Also, there are some of you here who will say, well, I go to church. I, I go, I'm, I'm here every week. I, I come, I come out to the, to the midweek thing. You know, what separates me from the person who says they're born again or, or, or they're Christian? Well, I'm glad you asked. There are a few things that we who have taken the name Christian believe, acknowledge, and confess. Number one, we believe that Jesus Christ is God, God the Son. We believe that he came to earth as a man in order to live the sinless life that we cannot. Number three, we acknowledge that he died in our place so that we would not have to pay the penalty we deserve. Number four, we confess that in our past life of sin, we were living for ourselves and not God. And number five, we confess that now we live for him who died for us and possess Jesus Christ as our Savior, our Lord, and our portion. If you came here today as an unbeliever, but right now you have been given ears to hear, and your eyes have been opened, and your heart yearns to come to Christ, come on! Come on! And I'm not doing an altar call. I'm just saying come to Christ. Come into the body of Christ. It's not enough just to come and sit and hear good teaching and good preaching and then go home unconverted. That's not enough. And don't worry about what you've done. The shed blood of Christ is strong enough to wipe away every sin and to give you a clean conscience and a new heart. And what that means is the Lord is able to implant within you a continuous desire to love and please him while at the same time increase your hatred for sin. Amen? Amen. Okay. All right. Y'all kind of quiet, but it's okay. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Bless the Lord. Application number two. Make rejoicing in the Lord a habit. Make rejoicing in the Lord a habit. Once more, the scripture commands us to rejoice in the Lord, always. But that's so hard to do when we take the things or the people and turn them into idols. Think marriage, children, jobs, cars, homes, etc. Most of these things are given as a blessing from God, but when we become so consumed with them, God gets left out of the picture. So instead of rejoicing in the Lord always, we are often downcast and disappointed because nothing sustains us like the sustainer himself. 
the sustainer of our souls. If we would just keep our eyes on Christ, being satisfied that he is our portion through poverty or prosperity, our rejoicing would be more consistent. It would become a habit naturally. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. A friend of mine said it another way. He said, the hill is high, the valley deep. The day is long, so hard to sleep. The storm rages, the sea is rough. My heart wants to cry, I've had enough. Yet my heart is calm as I kneel in prayer. I sense, my Lord, you are there. Reminded of scripture, my heart sings. Because of you, I can do all things. Vinnyism. Let us pray. Father, your word instructs us to walk by faith and not by sight. Yet so many of us do the exact opposite. Way too often, what we see, our experiences, what people say, brings fear, compromise, and sorrow. But I pray that in the middle of the storm, we would stand still and wait for the salvation of the Lord. So all would know that you alone are our portion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.